Hey everyone and welcome to Icons and Outlaws, your all-access backstage pass to the legends of the music world. I am your host, Jonathan Sayer. I am Jeff Butchko. And I am Logan Sayer. And this episode is number two, Buddy Holly. Remember to stay to the end of the episode to listen to our version of Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day that you can find on Spotify and, of course, our own curated Icons and Outlaws playlist. You can find everything about the show over at IconsAndOutlaws.com and make sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Oh, Jeff! I like you. Yes, sir. What is your first memory of Buddy Holly? Oh, man, I have to go back a little ways, but uh, I the plane crash. I remember my mom telling me about it. Okay. Not to spoil things coming ahead. <laughs> How about you, Logan? Yeah. Uh, I was listening to Weezer, and uh, yeah, and that's like the greatest Buddy Holly song ever. Can I get a You Suck? Oh. <laughs> you suck. Thank you. Oh, all right. Well, we're going to be talking about Buddy Holly today, and he it's this is an amazing story um, it, because there's going to be some shockers in this for uh, a lot of the listeners out there who may or may not know uh, much about Buddy Holly, it's pretty cool, especially you, young buck. Yeah, for sure. Um, but he is also, you know, before our time as well. So oh, it's yeah. kind of cool learning about, you know, it, this is somebody who was an absolute innovator. Okay. So he was born in Lubbock, Texas on September 7th, 1936. That's a long time ago. Yeah. yeah that's a, <laughs> I mean, it's really not, but it is. Ago, right. <laughs> it is. years ago. Well, think about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, it's, what, it's 86 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's something. What? Is that math? Is that math? 88. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so he would be 88 today if he was still alive. Something like that. Yeah. That's up there, man. Is that math? Well, then wait, how old is Keith Richards? Like 188. <laughs> so he was born in 1915? <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> so he was born Charles Harden Holly, all right? But it was H-O-L-L-E-Y. He later dropped C-E, and we'll talk about that. And he was named after both of his grandfathers, Charles and Harden. Oh. Okay? He was the fourth child of Lawrence Odell L.O. Holly and Ella Pauline Drake. Oh. Hi, my name's Ella Pauline. I know, elegant names. Yeah. You know, we learned that from the Midnight Train. Yeah, absolutely. All these people back in the old times, they had these yeah. long, Great long, names. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that, today, it's like Bill Ferguson. Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've talked about that. <laughs> Liam. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, they've got all these, yeah. I don't know, everyone's got to stretch out and do uh, whatever. Yeah. So, uh, older siblings were Larry, Travis, and Patricia Lou. Oh. Little Patty Lou. Nicknamed Buddy from a young age and uh, it stuck with him throughout his life. Oddly enough, the newspaper announcement uh, claimed that Buddy was actually a little girl when he was first born. Oh, huh. yeah. It's, uh, in the newspaper, it said, quote, a daughter weighing 8.5 pounds, <laughs> which is messed up. Huh. So Jesus got bad luck off the rip. Yeah, that was the Lubbock Evening Journal that wrote that. Uh, he was also only six and a half pounds and uh, obviously a boy. So interesting. Yeah. He's a little guy. Yeah. Buddy's family was mainly of English and wealth, wealth, Welsh descent <laughs> and had some uh, Native American ancestry. During the Great Depression, the Hollies frequently moved residences within Lubbock and uh, 17 residences in all. They moved oh, wow. around a lot. I mean, that's a lot of moving. And we know what that's like. You know, oh, right? I sure do. Moved around a lot. You never really did. No, just a couple of times. That's usually like a military family 
situation, though, isn't it? Yeah. Or you just I mean, for back sh- then. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Those times. Because you usually just, you held a job your whole life back then. Yeah. Or you just can't get your shit straight. True. You know. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. Wait, anyway. <laughs> what was that look at him for? True. <laughs> hey, that wasn't me. Are, are you saying you can't get your shit straight? Or? Uh, I don't know. May, may, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You should become a musician. That's what this podcast is oh, all about. That's not going to no, help. That's, that's going to make things just as better. Pick up a guitar. Yeah. We'll teach you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That okay. sounds like a horrible idea. Yeah. So his father did change jobs several different times. And uh, however, the Holly family, the entire family were a musical household. Except for Buddy's father, all family members could play an instrument or sing. His older brothers frequently entered local talent shows, and one time his brother signed up, and Buddy wanted to play with him. He wanted to play violin, Ooh. you know. However, Buddy um, couldn't actually play the violin. <laughs> you just you, you move that, uh, that, what do they call that? The, the, the bow? The bow, yeah. yeah. You just move the bow quick, yeah. you know, and yeah. just press a bunch of stuff on the fretboard. You pick up a fiddle and you put down the bow, kick off your shoes and you throw them on the floor. No? Sorry. (laughs) So not wanting to break little buddy's heart, his older brothers greased up the strings so they wouldn't make any noise. (laughs) And then buddy started singing his heart out instead and the three ended up winning the contest. I have a funny story. Okay. That Uh relates to this. Oh, did you grease up strings? Kind of. Ooh. So my first band, which I mentioned before in the last episode, Ink. Ink. Yes. We had a bass player and the kid had heart. I mean, he had like on stage, he had presence and he had heart and he's always, he's always the first one to practice. You know what I mean? Like he just, he was all about it, but he couldn't play at all. I mean, we sat there and you know, Steve Simbeck, Steve sat there with him for days. By the way, Steve Simbeck is a really good friend of ours who is in the band Critic City. So make sure if you guys are out there, check out Critic City. Um, I've actually done interviews on the other podcast with, um, uh, Chris, Chris yes. from Critic City, yeah, yeah. Steve's phenomenal, and yeah. so we we tried to get him to sit down and teach him, and he just he just could never get it. Yeah. So when we play the Flying Machine, mm-hmm. Steve would go over to the sound guy, give him five bucks, and turn the bass all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could like go he back in noticed. time, no, no one ever noticed. And if you could go back in time and watch one of our sets, you uh-huh. would notice there's like no next to nothing, no bass. That's hilarious. Yeah. Because wow. we didn't want him just hitting all the wrong, like, yeah. blah, 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 just didn't want to hurt his feelings. So we we greased we greased his uh, strings for him. Man, I wish I could have done that with drummers. And he didn't know. That's <laughs> kind of hard. We he had some know. bad drummers. Yeah, but I don't know if he he'll had listen no idea. to this, and now he'll know. You want to say his name? To no, see no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's probably the only bass player you I had. Know, He's like, that was me. <laughs> yeah. So when World War II started, the U.S. government called his brothers into service, Buddy's brothers. Gotcha. His brother Larry um, brought back a guitar he bought from a shipmate, and that guitar set Buddy off. He was just into it. At 11 years old, Buddy started taking piano lessons as well. All right. So he was uh, very musical, man. Like he really was into music. Nine months later, he quit the piano lessons and switched to guitar completely after seeing a classmate playing and uh, singing on the school bus. So he just had this you know, this yearn to be, that's what he wanted to do. His parents initially bought him a steel guitar, but Buddy insisted he wanted a guitar like his brothers. They bought him a, uh, the guitar, a gold top Gibson acoustic. Ooh. Yeah. You know how much that's worth today? Probably a lot. Uh, Got it from a pawn shop and his brother Travis taught him to play it. So by 15, Buddy was proficient on guitar, banjo, and mandolin. Wow. Yep. During his childhood, um, his early childhood, Holly was influenced by Hank Williams Jimmy Rogers, Hank Snow, Bob Wills, and the Carter family. We're definitely going to be talking about it. Junie Carter. Yeah. You know who uh, June Carter is? Uh, No. No? Oh, come on. Uh, Any guesses? Hold on a second. June Carter? What if you only had one chance? a very, very famous person's wife. 
Okay. Dance Jimmy Carter. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a good guess. It is. It's a good guess. pretty famous. It no? No. It's Johnny Cash's wife. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize he got married. Did you ever watch the movie with Joaquin? Joaquin Phoenix? Um, Reese Witherspoon. Parts of Carter. a trailer of a flashback. Yeah. Oh, my God. Watch that movie. It's a great movie. No, you know what's a great movie? Oh the boy. one with, uh, what's his name? John C. Riley. That's, Walk a, that's, hard. A, that's a phenomenal <laughs> yeah. movie. Hard. <laughs> Down lives. Rocky <laughs> Road. What you doing in there, Bob? <laughs> Dewey, we're doing marijuana. You don't want no part yeah, of this yeah. shit. <laughs> it gives you no hangover. It makes you feel great. <laughs> and sex is fantastic well, on it. Well, I don't know, Bob. I kind of want some of that marijuana. <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah, everybody God. needs to go out and watch that movie. It's yeah. such a classic. It's on Amazon, by the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely Amazon. watch that. It's yeah. so good. So uh, Buddy started writing songs and working with his childhood friend, Bob Montgomery. The two would jam together, practicing songs by the Louven Brothers and Johnny and Jack. They frequently listen to the Grand Ole Opry's radio program on WSM, uh, the Louisiana Hayride. Wow, I can't even say Louisiana today. Louisiana. (laughs) Hold on, this is for me. You suck. Yeah. (laughs) Louisiana Hayride on uh, KWKH, which they once drove 600 miles to play and then uh, were just turned away. So they actually got in like their their parents' vehicle, drove Mm -hmm. 600 miles to go play on that radio station, and they were like, nah, sorry, kids. We know what that's like. Oh, yeah. Been there, done We've that. We've gone that far and yeah. hit around and come back. Yeah. Yikes. And then they also <laughs> uh, would, uh, you know, try to, uh, they listen to the Big D Jamboree. So these are all, like, radio stations that played music well, like, and stuff. Yeah. The Grand Ole Opry was, like, the who's who. That was the big, big, big thing back in the day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And if you're not familiar with the Grand Ole Opry, it, it was a weekly American country music stage concert in Nashville, Tennessee. Founded on November 28th, 1925 by George D. Hay as a one-hour radio barn dance on Clear Channel's WSM, which first hit the airwaves on October 5th, 1925. Or, uh, yeah, it's the longest-running radio broadcast in U.S. history. I um, learned something new today. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. That's it. That's it. That's the Grand old Opry. And if I'm not, yeah, it's still on there. You can still listen to their daily, and I think they do uh, video stuff you can watch, right? Yeah, like well. On, what's that? Country music television CMT. Yeah. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> but Fauci shut it down because of COVID. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah, I don't know if they're back up and running yet. Are you sure? They, they might be. Maybe. But yeah, he that was like the first place he shut down. He's like, everybody at the Grand Ole Opry has to wear a mask or you get COVID-19. Is that how he sounds? Yeah. Oh, wow. Good job. At the same time, <laughs> Buddy was practicing with Bob, um, um, his buddy Bob. That we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and Holly played with other musicians he met in high school, including Sonny Curtis and Jerry Allison. And you'll hear about those names later as we go through this. In 1952, Holly and Jack Neal participated as a duo billed Buddy and Jack, that's what they were called, huh. in a talent contest on a local television show. So after Neal left, all right, so it didn't work out between the two, he was replaced by his buddy Bob, and they were billed as, well, Buddy and Bob which makes sense. <laughs> By the mid-1950s, Buddy and Bob played their style of music called Western and Bop. All right? So remember, this you're talking Texas in the early 50s. It was country western is what people wanted to hear, and that's what they were playing. That you know? and they're trying to mix it with sock hop music because that was just coming in. Right. That, that was just starting. Yeah, yeah, that was just starting to come out. Yeah, let's go to the hop. <clears throat> you know right. you hear that song, Logan? Oh, I've never heard that song before, but I can recognize the tune. Yeah, well, yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it's in a Disney movie somewhere. <laughs> Probably one or two. 
Sound of music, maybe. By the way, <laughs> totally derailing on this one here, but uh, I watched, uh, what is it, the Make It Red or uh, whatever movie? Oh, Flowing Red or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. it's not even about that. I don't know when you were saying it was about Dude, that. It had no to- totally. No, they, there was one little part where the mom was freaking out about it. But anyway, I, it was a very cute movie. It's on Disney. It's where she turns into a red panda. Okay. It was very cute. Very cute. Very, cute very young kid movie. Very rebellious. Do you, you want to talk off air? Do you need, do you Me need and to, you? Do you need to talk? Probably. Yeah. I'm a little worried about you. <laughs> I need a hug. You're talking about cute pandas. It was Disney. cute. It was. It was cute. Hey, man, red pandas are, are really cute. The daughter wanted to watch it. That's all. You realize your daughter, your daughter, your dad used to front a heavy, heavy goth metal band called Ventana. Yeah. And now he's talking about cute red pandas. I'm on sure Disney. one of his songs was about a cute red panda. Was it? Cute red panda. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that won't sell. <laughs> so, um, Buddy was influenced by late night radio stations that played the uh, the blues and rhythm and blues. Holly would sit in his car with Sonny Curtis and tune to distant, uh, quote, black radio stations that can only be received at night when bigger stations turned off local transmissions. And from what I read, they would literally like go to the edge of town where like, you know, they could actually get the signal mm-hmm. and they'd listen to like these this new what they called black radio at the time which was like blues and, you know, rhythm, R&B and stuff like that. And that's right. where, and if you listen to his stuff back then, obviously people listen to it now and they're like, oh, that sounds corny or whatever. But he was really trying to like blend the two styles together, you know? We should probably talk about payola. <clears throat> payola? Oh, yeah. yeah we'll you know we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. There's, there's plenty of that. That happened that. a lot in these times. That stopped. The radio play. Yeah, that stopped just right as I was getting signed. Well, streaming killed it. Yeah, absolutely. So, they killed the drug? What? No, no, payola. Yeah, peyote. well, we'll get to it later. That's peyote. Peyote, not peyote. Oh, Pe- payola. Yeah, oh. yeah. We'll oh. talk about. It. Okay. So Holly, my buddy, then changed his music by blending his earlier country and Western influence, of course, like I said, with R and B. After seeing the legendary and one and only Elvis perform, Buddy decided to pursue his career in music full time once he graduated high school. So at least he stayed in school. So that's cool. You know, he could have been like, oh, I'm just going to be a rock star, you know? Yeah. And we, we will do Elvis, by the way, because, I mean, you'll see in a lot of these stories, especially the older ones, how he inspired so many artists. Right. I mean, even like the Beatles, I mean, everybody was just in awe of Elvis. Or when they had interviews back in the day, they'd be like, "Oh, you know, we just want to be like Elvis." Oh yeah. Oh, we listen to Elvis. He was different. He he kind of had uh, this whole when everybody was buttoned up shirts and long dresses, he was he was sex gyrating and dancing. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. But I do have a very um a very uh, funny, I guess you'd say funny or interesting anecdote that we'll discuss later about Elvis that I found out. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about it. So by mid 1955, Buddy and Bob, who already worked with an upright bass player played by Larry Wellborn, added drummer Jerry Allison to their lineup. After seeing Elvis performing live in Lubbock, uh, who um, who Pappy Dave Stone of KDAV booked, Buddy really wanted to get, you know, get after it. He really right. wanted to become just like Elvis. So in February, uh, he opened for Elvis at the uh, Fair Park Coliseum in April at the Cotton Club, then again in June at the Coliseum. Wow. So this guy just started playing guitar not too long ago, s- said, screw it, I'm going to do it. And then he's opening up for who could arguably be the biggest rock and roll star at the time. Right. 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 But we should also disclaim that back then it was a little easier to get gigs. Oh, because music wasn't like it is nowadays. A lot easier. So, I mean, like if you were you were a diamond in the rough, if you could play an instrument or you had a band back then, because like not a lot of people did. Well, most most people were working for a living and, you know, it was also looked down upon. Right. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) Like you if you were a musician and you weren't doing like, 
in, no offense to religious music, but if you weren't doing like, you know, church stuff or the whatever, gospel. Yeah, gospel. Yeah. If you weren't doing that, it's the devil's. Yeah. Music. You were looking like, oh, you must be doing them tweeds. You know? So I guess in, in, in full circle, it was prime time to be able to get gigs like that. Yeah, in, absolutely. In this time. Yeah. Absolutely. In February, um, again, he opened for, you know, Elvis and all this. So um, Elvis significantly influenced the group to turn more towards rock and roll. In fact, I read somewhere that Elvis was literally talking to him like, hey, man, you got to hold on. Let me see if I can do yeah, it. Yeah. Hey, man, you need to like, uh, you know, do a little bit more of that rock and roll. Was that was that good at all? Was that I don't know. I, I just think of Jack White from Dewey Cox when he's Elvis in that. <laughs> yeah. Yo, kung fu, kung fu hey, man. man. Hey man. <laughs> <laughs> what exactly. the hell did he just say? Yeah. <laughs> Such a good movie. So Buddy and the King became friends, and uh, Buddy even drove Elvis around when he was in the Lubbock area. Like he would pick him up and drive him around all over the place in his parents' car. Nice. <laughs> That's amazing. That's crazy. So eventually, Bob Montgomery, who leaned toward a traditional country sound, he left the group, though they continued writing and composing songs together. Holly kept pushing his music toward a straight-ahead rock and roll sound, working with Allison, Wellborn, and other local musicians, including his pal and guitarist Sonny Curtis and bassist Don Guess. In October, Holly was booked as the opener for Bill Haley and his comics. Ooh, that's a good act. You know what that is? You know what song that is? Nope. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. We're going to rock, rock, rock tonight. You've heard that song like, before. Come on. No? No. No, probably not. No. Yeah. I don't know. Really? I've heard like rock around the Christmas tree. <laughs> no. No. Wow. Yeah. It's a little, a little similar. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. You suck. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole world of music out there that you haven't even touched yet. Yeah. I know. Oh, I, I know. know. There's this new... But that's what we're going to do. And that's oh, what we're going to do for the listeners the, as well. Absolutely. That's what this show is all about is introducing you and our listeners to music that you may not even know about that's out there yeah. and that you may not even be interested in until you find out the history of the the, the music and the people who wrote it. You right. know what I mean? So that's what we're doing here. So we're, we're just teasing with you. So so that, that's when the sock hops that I mentioned before yeah. were big. And, you know, the girls wore, wore the poodle skirts. The guys had the white T-shirts with the cigarette pack rolled up in the sleeve and their greased hair. Okay. And they would they would dance where they, you know they do, 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 right do, while they're cleaning do, their car do, 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 and spinning each other around and doing stuff. No, that's no, grease. no, no, that's no. grease. Oh, it's a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing though, right? The sock hop was like it was it was like a dancing. Yeah, that it was had a never dance. been you know, but yeah. it, it was like the, the teenagers did it. it no, was, yeah. Okay. Right. So now again, he, Happy Days. You've seen the the TV show Happy Days? Sure. Yeah. Okay, that's like sock hop era. That's like what yeah. I'm talking about. That was gotcha, like gotcha. late fifties. Yeah, that was late fifties. Yeah, the Fonzie set and all late fifties, I believe. Yeah. Late fifties, yeah, yeah, early sixties. Yeah. 60s, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he he was booked for him, and he was um, seen by the, a scout uh, in Nashville named Eddie Crandall. Okay, obviously impressed by Buddy, Eddie Crandall talked uh, Grand Ole Opry manager Jim Denny into finding a recording contract for Holly because back then, a recording contract was I have this guy who has a studio. I will pay for you to come in there and record, and then we'll put out a couple of records. That be, that's okay. what it was, you know what I mean? Right. And then you could possibly get it played on the local radio station, but that's where he's talking payola. Uh, yeah. So, like, there's some radio stations that would pick it up and just be like, this is also back when you could play whatever you wanted. Right. DJs could just be like, hey, I got this new record from this jazzy cat downtown, you know. <laughs> right. You know, there was no like laws, not laws, but rules, I guess you'd say regulations yeah. or whatever. They could play whatever they wanted to, but a lot of these guys and these small these labels as they're coming up, producers whatnot, if you were a DJ and I really wanted my stuff to be played on there, you'd get you and your get little, buddies and, and drive the on down. Splits were terrible yeah. back then. Like you get the a little artists, stretch. The artists got what maybe 10% 
and the label took like 80 or 90. Mm. I mean, it was. That's crazy. Oh, we'll talk about atrocious it. atrocious back then. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about it. So Pappy Stone sent Denny a demo tape, which Denny forwarded over to Paul Cohen. Cohen signed the band to Decca Records in February of 1956. So boom, you got a record deal. Nice. All right. February of 1956. In the contract, Decca accidentally misspelled Holly's surname as H-O-L-L-Y, no E-Y. Mm. All right. From that point forward, he was known as Buddy Holly with no E. Gotcha. It's the same thing that happened to Axel Rose. He was Axial. <laughs> and they, they misprinted his name. Shut <laughs> <laughs> Axial. <laughs> uh, on January 26, 1956, Holly went to his first professional recording session with producer Owen Bradley. He was part of two more sessions in Nashville. The producer selected the session musicians and arrangements. Holly became frustrated by his lack of creative control. So again, you signed a contract. This happened a lot. Mm-hmm. It still does. Where you get in there and the producer goes, well, I've got this guy that's going to do this. And it's going to sound like this. All I want you to do is play what I wrote. Okay. Simple. That, that, that's what they, you know what I mean? And this guy, Buddy Holly, was he was a, a really true, genuine musician. He wanted to create. So he was like getting, you know, upset about it. So in April of 1956, Decca released Blue Days, Black Nights as a single and Love Me on the B-side. Hmm. B-sides, by the way, were secondary songs that were sent out with single records. So... If, uh, let's just say you decided you wanted to put a single, you got signed. Nice. You're, these guys are like, man, we love you. This one song yeah. you have is amazing. Logan and the Moffat Tones. <clears throat> Moffat Tones. No, the Muppet Tones. The Muppet, I don't know, that's Taken, I think. Yeah, oh, we'll do Moffat Tones. Yeah. Moffat? Damn. So you wanted to put, they wanted to put out one song because they knew that song was going to be, quote unquote, a hit, or they thought it would be a hit. Yeah, so did I. So what they would do, instead of leaving the backside blank, mm-hmm. they would just put just kind of a, a, a normal song on the other side of it and send it out. But what seems to tend to happen is that for people who truly love those artists, B-sides are usually the better of the songs, in their opinion. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's different. It's raw. It's not like most, not all the time, but sometimes. It's also kind of like a middle finger to (laughs) to the producers. Yeah. For the artists. So the artists, you know, they go into the studio and like you said, they're telling them to do this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of it, the artist is like, oh, this is how I would have done it. Here's a B-side. Boom. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. It's kind of like gotcha, a foot gotcha. to the producer. Gotcha. Yeah. And th- those songs um, sometimes wouldn't, wouldn't even get released. Okay. You know what I mean? Or they would wait to release them. Like uh, B-Sides and Rarities come out. Deftones, yeah. B-Sides and Rarities was amazing. Yeah. And they do like cover songs that they just, they're in the studio together. They jam and record and it's just sounds like crap. It's not mastered or mixed or anything. Hmm. Just like rough tracks. Those can be B-Sides. So pretty cool. It's, just, it's fanboy, <clears throat> fanboy stuff. You yeah. Know? Like if you're really know. into some group. You can yeah. get more. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily the, the mainstream stuff that they've already released, you know. Right. So Jim Denny added Holly on tour as the opening act for Farron Young. While on this tour, they were promoted as Buddy Holly and the Two Tones. Decca then called them Buddy Holly and the Three Tunes. <laughs> the label released Holly's second single, Modern Don Juan, along with You Are My One Desire. Now, have you heard any of those? No. I didn't think so. And to be honest... Jeff probably hasn't either. No, I have not. <laughs> exactly. I have not. This is These were very in the beginning of his career, way back in the late 50s. So it's not exactly so. You'd have to really go down the rabbit hole, which maybe we'll throw those up on our uh, our playlist so people can actually just listen to the playlist and hear those songs on yeah. there. You know. So unfortunately, neither one of these singles tickled anyone's fancy. On January 22nd, 1957, Decca informed Holly they would not be re-signing him 
and insisted he could not record the same songs for anyone else for five years. That same shit happened to Universal and me. Yeah, uh, exact same thing happened. A couple of classics like uh, Midnight Shift and Rock Around with Ra- uh, Ollie V did come out of those DECA sessions, okay, later songs. Gotcha. But nothing issued at that time went anywhere. It looked as though as Holly had missed his shot at stardom, right? He had a record deal. The songs didn't really do much, and then they didn't re-sign him. Um, but, yeah, that, that happens a lot. It happened to me with Universal where, like, they say, well, here you go. You get this opportunity. And we talked about the... Um, the, the baloney on the wall. The baloney on the wall. Yep. If it doesn't stick, they don't give you any more money, and then they go, well, yeah, we're not going to sign you, or, or we're going to let you out of your contract, but we're keeping your masters. You cannot release them or re-record them for five years. It happens Damn. to so many. It used to happen to a lot of people back then, because uh, there's a lot of popular ones I'm sure we'll go over over time, but I think like Kiss, one of their albums, the, the record company owns the masters for life. Oh, yeah. The, the, there was somebody that was just reading about that, Another company put their record out. Oh, it was Rehab, the uh, hip-hop rock group, uh, Rehab. Yeah. Um, you know the song um, Sitting at a Bar? Yeah. Sitting at a bar on the inside. Yeah, yeah. So they originally released that on, I believe, I can't remember what record label it was, but then they signed over to like Epic Records, and then they went to re-release it, but they couldn't, and then that other company re-released it to throw it out there. Jeez. It's kind of screwed up. Yeah. You know? I don't know the whole ins and outs of it, but yeah, it was. it's pretty messed up. So... Uh, the, the really screwed up part is, is that Universal Records mm-hmm. had a huge fire oh. and all of their, not all, but a lot of their masters were destroyed, including ours. Of course. So those sessions, like uh, I tried to get a hold of Jeff Tomei to see if I could get him and he doesn't have them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever. So Holly was very disappointed, obviously, with his time with Decca. Inspired by Buddy Knox's Party Doll and Jimmy Bowen's I'm Sticking With You, he decided to visit Norman Petty who produced and promoted both of those successful records, okay? So at the time, those were successful records. Buddy, Jerry Allison, bassist Joe B. Malden, and rhythm guitarist Nikki Sullivan pulled together and headed to Petty's studio in Clovis, New Mexico. The group recorded a demo of now the now classic, That'll Be The Day, which you can hear at the end of this episode, our version of it, which they had previously recorded in Nashville. Now rocking that lead guitar, Holly finally achieved the sound he wanted. They got the song nailed down and recorded. Along with Petty's help, the group got it picked up by Murray Deutsch, Deutsch, (laughs) a publishing associate of Petty's, and Murray got it to Bob Teal, an executive at Coral Records. Teal loved it. Ironically, Coral Records was a subsidiary of Decca Records. Oh, of course. (laughs) Which was the company that Holly had signed with before. And remember, this was back in the day when this was very small. You know, you didn't have like all these huge corporations worldwide doing all this stuff. Right. So it's very, I don't know, just very ironic. And uh, on, on a side note for listeners out there, uh, a subsidiary is a, and for Logan, <laughs> is a smaller label under the major label's umbrella. Okay. For instance, Universal signed my band to Republic, a sub, uh, subsidiary of Universal Music. They, they dealt primarily with rock. They typically gotcha. do that to, to separate genres. Correct. So like you would have, like if you're, if you're let's say you're Virgin Records, and you want to have metal bands? Well, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to put metal bands on the Virgin label, so they would come up with something else called like Death Dealer, <laughs> and it would be a sub, you know, <laughs> Death Death Dealer. Virgin. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah okay. Um, Godsmack was on Republic Records oh, with us. Okay, gotcha, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So anyway, just Norman Petty saw the potential in Buddy and became his manager. Okay, sounds like a good guy so far, right? Oh yeah. He listened to him. He got him signed to another deal and Heck became yeah. his manager. Oh, yeah, you're going to hate this guy. Of course. He sent the record to Brunswick Records in New York City. 
Teal saw the record as a potential hit, but there were some significant hurdles to overcome before it could be released. According to author Philip Norman, in his book Rave On, Teal would only get the most reluctant support from his record company. Decca had lucked out in 1954 when they signed Bill, ha- Bill Haley and his Comets and saw their Rock Around the Clock top the charts, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that. Still, very few of those in charge at Decca had a natural feel or appreciation for rock and roll, let alone any idea of where it might be heading or whether the label could or should follow it where it was going. Fools. Right. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, they, they didn't could only know. see the future. They heard this thing and they're like, oh, I don't know if I like this. Damn kids and their loud music. Yeah, I don't know if there's going to be any money. Yeah. Playing your damn records all loud. <laughs> I'm out here trying to milk cows. <laughs> also remember that although Buddy had been dropped by deck of the year before, the contract that Holly signed explicitly forbade him from recording anything he had recorded for them, released or not, for five years. Oh, wow. Okay, remember that. Yeah. However, Coral was a subsidiary of DECA, and DECA's Nashville office could hold up the release and possibly even haul Holly into court. So even though it's a subsidiary, it's still this this area where they're like, you know, no, we own this. You cannot re-release it. Wow. So That'll Be the Day was issued in May of 1957, mainly as an indulgence to Teal to humor him. The record was put out on the Brunswick uh, label, more of a jazz and R&B label, Mm -hmm. and credited to the Crickets. The group chose this name to prevent the suits at DECA. Of course, think about it. You can't come after me if I'm not putting that record out. That's smart. You know, at least not under my name. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. And more importantly... DECA's Nashville office, you know, to keep it from them and from uh, keeping them from finding out that the new release was from the guy they had just dropped. The name Crickets was inspired by a band that Buddy and his group followed called the Spiders. And they initially thought about calling themselves the Beatles with two E's. Okay. But Buddy said he was afraid people would want to squash them. So they picked the Crickets. Where do you (laughs) think the Beatles got their name from? Hmm. (laughs) I'll just put it this way. Um, the Beatles, huge fans of Buddy Holly. Oh. Yeah, huge. And we'll definitely be doing an episode on them. So Petty also became the group's manager and producer, signing the Crickets. And so not only is he Buddy Holly's, but now he's the Crickets, identified as Allison Sullivan and Malden to a contract. Unfortunately, Holly wasn't listed as a member in the original document to keep his involvement with that. Uh, that'll be a day, a secret. So in other words, they they took Buddy Holly's name wasn't even on there wow. because they didn't want him, you know, to have the DECA come in and try to take him, you know, or take right. money from him. That's crazy. This ruse would later become the source of severe legal and financial problems for uh, Buddy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely turns out ugly. The song shot to number one on the national charts that summer. But of course, DECA knew Holly was in the band by then. So with Teal's per, uh, persuasion and realizing they had a hit on their hands, the company agreed to release Holly from the five-year restriction on his old contract. Okay, that was kind of cool. This release left uh, left him free to sign any recording contract he wanted. While sorting out the ins and outs of Holly's legal situation, uh, Teal knew that Buddy was far more than a one-hit wonder and that he could potentially write more and different types of hits. Teal was all about him. All right? Okay. So Holly found himself with two recording contracts. One with Brunswick as a member of the Crickets, Crickets, and the other with Coral Records as Buddy Holly. Okay, so he had two contracts going on at one time. Even though technically his name wasn't really on the one, you know what I mean? (laughs) But he still did. And this is all thanks to Teal's ingenious strategy to get the most out of Buddy and his abilities. By releasing two separate bodies of work, 
the Crickets could keep on rocking while allowing its apparent leader and star to break out on his own. Kind of like the Midnight Train in Icons and Outlaws. Yeah, yes, I guess. <laughs> sure. You might have to explain that analogy to me. I'm not real sure on that one. So Petty, whose name um, it seems fitting here as we go through this, uh, acted as their manager and producer. All right. He handed out writing credits at random. Okay. Uh, gifting Nikki Sullivan and Joe B. Malden and himself the co-authorship of the song I'm Gonna Love You Too Uh-oh. while leaving Holly's name off of Peggy Sue. At first, the song title Peggy Sue was actually, uh, it was named after Buddy's biggest fan. That's why uh, he liked the song. Yeah, it was cool. That was at first he did it. So Peggy Sue, you ever, do you know that song? Mm. Peggy Sue, pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue, my Peggy my Peggy Sue. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You never no? heard that song? What? Oh, yeah, man. No. You've got some listening to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've do. got some listening to do because I absolutely love that song. So, uh, yeah. So think about that. That was one of his biggest hits. Yeah, I know. And that guy, not only did he take credits for himself for writing, co-authoring stuff, but then didn't give Buddy Holly any credit. That's so messed up. That is, it, and it, to be honest, that kind of stuff happens way more often than we I wonder how that was about. Well, I guess back then they didn't have it all ironed out, but it wouldn't be legal. I mean, he's he's a recording artist. He's the vocal credit on that song. Right. But if you've got someone filling out the paperwork that you still have to acknowledge who it is. Not back then. Yeah, I guess not. Yeah. Things have changed. Oof. So Petty usually added his own name to the credit line, something that uh, managers and producers who wanted a more significant piece of the pie did back in the 50s. Huh. Yeah. To be somewhat fair, Petty made some suggestions, Suggestions, okay, so mm-hmm. which were vital in shaping certain Holly songs. So he had a little bit of info here and there. He'd add some, you know, little, like, uh, stuff like, hey, maybe do this note instead of that one, you know. Or, now, how does that work nowadays? Restring your guitar. I don't know. <laughs> what? How does that work nowadays now? I mean, they just get an album credit. They don't get individual song credits, right? The producers? They can. It can just they? depends on how you get it done. Yeah, you can either do... Um, you can either give uh, individual credits for each one, or you can do what we've talked about before with the um, all the the word freaking escapes me now. Um, what's it, points? So you can do either oh, do, yeah, yeah. you can either do points, yeah. or you can get like full credits and stuff like right. that. And points in the back in back end on stuff, it just depends, you know. And we'll we'll break that down one of these days too. We'll go through that. Maybe we'll do a bonus on that and how the whole you know recording um, well, record project thing works. You mentioned uh, Quincy Jones earlier, yeah, and he made millions. Oh yeah. Of producing oh yeah Quincy michael and all kinds of stuff absolutely so however he didn't contribute as much as um all of his credits allowed us to believe okay so he was giving himself more than he was you know due right some confusion over songwriting was exacerbated by problems stemming from holly's contracts in 1956 petty had his own publishing company norva jack music weird name yeah. and buddy signed a contract to publish his new songs okay so and that's a very big thing like i have my own publishing company and you do too now as well right yes yeah you kind of have to do that because as a publisher you get to keep your publishing rights and your publishing um points okay yeah however holly had signed an exclusive agreement with another company the year before to reduce his profile as a songwriter until a settlement could be made with petty and convince the other publisher that they weren't losing too much in any compensation but he copyrighted many of his new songs under the pseudonym charles harden all right. Okay. And again, Charles Harden is the name of his two grandfathers. That's his actual real name right. is Charles Harden. So the dual recording contracts allowed Holly to record a crazy amount of songs during his short-lived 
18 months of fame. Keep that in mind during this entire thing. 18 months. Meanwhile, his band, billed as Buddy Holly and the Crickets, became one of the top attractions of the time. Okay. Holly was the front man, singing lead and playing lead guitar, which was unusual, like Jeff said, for the era and writing or co-writing many of the songs, okay? But the Crickets were also a great band, creating a big and exciting sound, which is unfortunately lost to history, aside from some live recordings from their 1958 British tour. But from what I've read everywhere, they were like explosive on stage. When back then you just kind of stood there right. and just played your instrument. Yeah, they were like, like that. energetic and like getting into it. Now getting into it, I don't mean like, you know, they're not doing whirlwinds on stage because you, know <laughs> I mean? you know what I mean? Buddy Holly flipping his guitar around. Oh, you know what I mean? Your kids yeah. were going to love this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's more like that. You know yeah. how he was kind of acting with that? It was like kind of that that era, right? you know, where he was like starting to just, I don't yeah. know, they, they were... They were he wanted to put on a show. Right. You know, I and mean, that's it's all just, thanks to Elvis, by the way, because like you said, he started pretty much that. Yeah, it, g- it gave him that, like, if he can do it, you know. So Allison was a drummer ahead of his time and contributed to the songwriting more often than his colleagues. And Joe B. Malden and Nikki Sullivan provided a solid rhythm section. Good for him. Absolutely. That's pretty rare for back then. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, telling you, man, going through this, and I've always known who Buddy Holly was. I was always a fan of his music. And then I'm going through, and as I'm doing the research, I'm like, oh my God, this guy, like, he is the the icon mm. so i'm glad he, we're actually doing him uh doing his uh episode number two here so the group relied on originals for their singles making them unique in years ahead of their time okay where most people were doing covers right you know in 1957 1958 songwriting wasn't considered a skill essential to a career in rock and roll the music business was still limping along the lines it had followed since the 1920s Songwriting was a specialized profession set on the publishing side of the industry and not connected to performing and recording. So in other words, you had a songwriter Mm -hmm. and then you had the musician. Okay. And then the songwriter would write the song for this guy and then this guy would go out and perform it. Okay. That's just how it was. That's how Taylor Swift... But no, she wrote her own stuff. Yeah, she writes all I, her stuff. I'm pretty sure it was a middle-aged man in Montana in <laughs> that wrote all those hits. <laughs> right. A performer might write a song, or even more rarely, like Duke Ellington, you know, like It Don't Mean a Thing. You didn't know that song? Uh, it Don't Mean a Thing. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, it ain't got that swing. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, you can count composition among his key talents. However, this was generally left to the expert songwriters. Okay. Gotcha. Any rock and roller wanting to write songs would also have to get past the image of Elvis. He was set to become a millionaire at the age of 22. Wow. However, he never wrote his songs. And the few songwriting credits he had resulted from business arrangements rather than writing anything. I'm not surprised by that. That's I was shocked to be really? honest. Yes. I don't No, yeah, yeah, he doesn't strike me as a type. He never did. He's a, he's, he's a, a performer. He's a good, good decent guitar he's player. He's an entertainer. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I don't see him being like the brains behind musical structure at all. Yeah, no, I didn't I I guess I kind of did. And then when I read that, I was like, wow. Yeah. Do you think he's still alive? Oh, man. That's but let me ask you this. He, he'd obviously be like extremely old right now. So let's just say he's probably gone now. But do you think you at some point in time he faked his own death or like went into a witness protection thing? Yeah. Because people were just insane. Yeah. Around him. Yeah. I mean, it's people say Michael Jackson's still alive. Tupac. Yeah. I mean, there's, Tupac, there's a lot of like famous artists that people claim and they swear that they're still alive they just went to like a witness protection thing and because they can't handle all the fame and the paparazzi yeah. and the pressure and everything that sounds yeah. like a good bonus episode it we does. should we should go through that in one of these days and see who uh you know we're we're, we're talking about by the way uh 
We are, uh, if you guys didn't get a chance to listen to or if you haven't signed up for our Patreon yet, please do so because uh, the behind the scenes in uh, Patreon uh, episodes are awesome. Our bonus episodes are great. We just did one where we talked about the top 10 songs in the U.S. Uh, as per Spotify. And boy, oh boy, was that fun. And I, <laughs> I took a challenge on. Yeah? Yeah, you last finally week. finally did Taylor Swift. No. Damn. we We had a one song that we all were shocked by called Pushing P. No, it's Pushing P. Pushing P. Yeah. So I did... My own version of pushing pee. It's pu- pushing the pee, like like piss, like pushing the piss. So you're gonna hear that on the bonus today. So yeah. if you guys want to get on Patreon because you're not gonna want to miss that oh, jam. It's man. really good. Can I ask a question real quick? And we'll get back to talking Absolutely. about Buddy Holly here. Does it have anything to do with you passing stones? No, I didn't think about that. Oh. I didn't. That's a good one though. Is that your mantra for when you get older to have to pee? Yeah, push oh, the yeah. pee. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This guy, I'm telling you, like so many kidney stones. Uh, we were on Seriously? a tour, had to stop in yeah, at I'm, a hospital. I'm up to probably 15 in my life now. Yeah, that I've had. Yeah. So, buddy, <laughs> buddy Holly and the crickets changed that's uh, changed the whole dynamic that was going on mm. seriously by hitting number one with a song they had written and then reaching the top 10 with originals like Oh Boy and Peggy Sue. They were regularly charging up the charts based on their songwriting. This ability wasn't appreciated by the public at the time and wouldn't even be noticed widely until the 70s. Still, thousands of aspiring musicians, including John Lennon and Paul McCartney from some uh, little band called uh, the, the Beatles. Are you familiar with them at all? Uh, no. <laughs> you know who Ringo Starr is, right? Oh, of course. My favorite There you go. Yeah. Well, they took note of their success, and some of them decided to try and, uh, you know, try to be like Buddy Holly. Okay. That's that's pretty much, they were in love with him, to be honest. And uh, we'll talk about that, too, how they actually, um, how they first saw him as well. So also unknown at the time, Holly and his crew changed the primary industry method of recording, which was to bring the artist into the label studio working on their timetable. If an artist were highly successful, they got a blank check in the studio, Ooh. and any union rules were thrown out. Can okay. we do that nowadays? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that was rare and only happened to the highest bar of music- musicians. So, like, you know, Elvis could probably walk in there and they'd be like, whatever he wants, you do it. See? Yeah. <laughs> it's Elvis, see? Well, I'll go, I'll go back to that Beatles documentary that yeah. I keep talking about, Disney+. Plus. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. that was for Get Back. You know, they did the rooftop performance in that album. Yeah. The documentary was them recording and making those songs. And every day they would walk in and like they would just be handed everything. Like they would not get out of their chairs and, and not stop playing their instrument. Like people would walk by, give them like food, like water, yeah. cigarettes, like probably drugs. Oh, but, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but I mean, like they, they did didn't say, have to do anything. Did you say probably drugs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. <laughs> Almost definitely drugs. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, remember those guys did Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and Yellow Submarine and oh boy. They that were, was because of their trip to India. Yeah, they, their trip. Emphasis yeah, on and that word. And they never came back the <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, emphasis on that word. Yeah. yeah. So Buddy Holly and the Crickets, however, did their thing, starting with That'll Be the Day in Clovis, New Mexico at Petty Studio. They took their time and experimented until they got the sound they were looking for. No union told them when to stop or start their work, and they delivered terrific records. Not to mention, they were albums that sounded different than anything out there. Okay. Okay. He was a perfectionist and he knew what he wanted. The results changed the history of rock music. The group worked out a new sound that gave shape to the next wave of rock and roll. Most definitely influenced was British rock and roll and the British invasion beat with the lead and rhythm guitars working together to create a fuller, more complex sound. 
on songs such as Not Fade Away, Every Day, Listen to Me, Oh Boy, Peggy Sue, Maybe Baby, Rave On, Heartbeat, and It's So Easy. Holly took rock and roll's range and sophistication and pushed it without abandoning its, its, yeah, its excitement. I'm getting excited. And most importantly, it's fun. He wanted it to be fun. He wanted people to be like... Dance. Yes. Yeah. And he's actually said before, too, like, if, if, if they're not moving, I'm not moving. You know? And I used to say that all the time. Yeah. And this is somebody way before me that was doing this. You know? It's just awesome. Holly and the band weren't afraid to push the envelope and try new things. Even on their singles, Peggy Sue... Or even on their singles. Peggy Sue used uh, changes in volume and timber on the guitar that would usually only, was only used in instrumental albums. Words of Love was one of the earliest examples of double-tracked vocals in rock and roll, which is really cool. Wow. Because that's pretty much how you do it now. And the Beatles would jump on that train the following decade. Buddy Holly and the Crickets were extremely popular in America. Okay? Of course they were. Makes sense. Still in England, they were even more significant. They were huge. Which is every every artist. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. They're always bigger overseas. Yeah, I don't absolutely. know why. I don't get it. But. Because their appreciation of music is so much greater than ours. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's just because there's too much choice here? Um. Yeah. You know, it's like it's too easy to just turn it off and find something else in yeah, two seconds. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I also think that, you know... The it, again, the appreciation's just not there. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people that do appreciate music, like we do, and hopefully yeah. people that are listening to this. Oh yeah. But I think over there, you've got more of a, a cultured um, outlook and, and of music. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're not just looking at somebody as like, oh, they just put out a cool song. It's like, wow, this is a, a musician that did this and he crafted this with this. It's just appreciated more, I think. Right. Right. You know, and that's just my opinion. You know, for all I know, who I don't know. I've never been over there. I have no idea, you know. So, of course, like I said, they were huge there. Their impact was compared to Elvis and in some ways even bigger. Yeah, boy. Wow. This success was because they toured England. Elvis didn't. Uh Oh. Yeah. So think about that. They went across the pond, Mm -hmm. and of course they blow up over there. Elvis never got the chance. So the only thing they heard is maybe if a record was in their store or, you know, if it was on a radio station someplace, you know what I mean? That's all they had. Right. They spent a month there in 1958 playing a list of shows that were still talked about 30 years later. It also had to do with their sound and Holly's persona on stage. The group's heavy use of rhythm guitar fit right in with the sound of skiffle music, a mix of blues, folk, country, and jazz elements that most of the younger British were introduced to playing music and their first taste of rock and roll. Skiffle Ah, uh, you want to go to play some of the skiffle music? <laughs> Give me a 4-4 four, four skiffle beat. <laughs> I like that skiffle's great. Sorry for that horrible accent. <laughs> One and a two and a three. It's freaking amazing, though. Skiffle. I never heard of that. So he was tall, skinny, and wore glasses, right? Okay. Yeah, he had the, the black, black Coke, Coke bottle yeah. glasses with the tape in the middle, right? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think he had tape in the middle. I think that was I thought that's where that came from. Yeah, I think so. Like he was like one of the first popular icon people iconic people that wore those glasses right Right. he just looked like an ordinary guy that was good at music right yeah that was part of buddy's appeal as a rock star was just how he didn't look like you know didn't look like a rock star right he inspired tens of thousands of british teenagers who couldn't compare themselves to elvis or gene vincent you know gene vincent probably not no yeah you jeff that's uh bebop balula she's my baby Bebop Baloo. Am I the oldest? I am the oldest person I, here. Yeah. It sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so Gene Vincent was huge back in the day, okay. as was Elvis. But when you looked at them, they looked like rock stars. And it's hard for normal, quote unquote, normal 
teenagers to kind of associate to that. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you've got these guys. Let's just like Weezer mm-hmm. who look like normal guys or even let's just say the grunge movement. Yeah. They look like normal guys who just played music. You immediately have a connection because, hey, these guys look like me. Oh, that could be me. Right. They talk like me. They're singing songs about, you know, what I go through. You Logan, know? do you ever think you could be Kid Cuddy? <laughs> Do you think, ever like stand in the mirror and you're like, I got this. Uh, I'm gonna be Kid Cudi. Not not no. not not to that <laughs> level. No. I, I always imagine myself being right below that level. Okay. Yeah, like a like a six nine level. Gotcha. Yeah. Subpar. 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 Yeah. Did you say a six nine level? Yeah. <laughs> is that what the hell does that even mean? It's what is six nine? A, that's a rapper. It's like a yin yang. No, six no, nine. That's, no. A, that's a rapper. It's a rapper. That's a rapper. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the he's the cool cat with all the like the gumdrop grill and shit like that. By oh, the way, okay. by the way, I just came up with a brilliant idea. Okay. Um, for one of these episodes coming up, yeah, you're gonna do all the research and Uh-oh. you're going to host the show. Oh, I'm liking this and a new artist that and we a have new no artist idea. that yeah. we have no idea about. Oh god. Yeah. yeah. All right. So gonna be and you got to do the cover song. <laughs> I'm going to bring my keyboard in and we're going to hook you up and you're going to sit there and make that. All right, so be... stay tuned for next year's yeah. new episode. <laughs> so in the 50s, British guitarist Hank Marvin of the Shadows owed his look and that he wore his glasses proudly on stage, of course, to Buddy Holly and was brought into the 70s by Elvis Costello. Nice. Another glasses guy. Yeah, that's who they got it from. Buddy may have played several different kinds of guitars, but he was specifically responsible for popularizing the Fender Stratocaster. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Especially in England. For many uh, wannabe rock and rollers in the UK, Holly's 1958 tour was the first chance they'd had to see or hear this amazing guitar in action. And it quickly became the guitar of choice for anyone wanting to be a guitarist in England. That's pretty cool. I did not know that. That is awesome. That's cool that he was like the first to bring it to the table. So... Um, that black guitar that I have sitting right behind you in there, mm-hmm. that is a Fender Stratocaster. Oh, yeah. 64 Fender Stratocaster with dual humbucker pickups and a whammy ball. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what that's from? Uh, no. Wayne's World. Uh, uh, I got it. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah, it. Yeah, okay. We are old. Jesus. Hey, we are, I know. Yeah. My God. So, um, in fact, um, Marvin is said to have had the first uh, Stratocaster ever brought in to England, by the way. So, that's pretty awesome. Hank Marvin from The Shadows, yeah. the guy yeah. who took Buddy Holly's look. Yeah. It's said, rumored, that he has the first one ever brought into England. Well, That's we're going to do an episode eventually on Leo Fender, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Crickets became a trio with Sullivan dipping out in late 1957, right after the group's appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. But a lot more would transpire over the next year or so. The group consolidated its success with the release of two LPs, the Chirping Crickets and Buddy Holly. Okay, They had two successful international tours and performed more in the United States. Holly had also started to have different ideas and aspirations than Allison and Malden. They never thought of leaving Texas as their home, and they continued to base their lives there. While Buddy, he wanted to be in New York. Right. Not just to do business, but he wanted to live there. His marriage to Maria Alina Santiago, a receptionist in Marie Deutsch's office, made the decision to move to New York that much easier. So funny, because like, that, that's like the classic tale of all those older times. Remember the uh, Sound City documentary? Yes. And everybody was sitting on the receptionist there. Mm-hmm. Like the guys from Rat and like Tom Petty was even like trying to oh, yeah. hit on her. Like it's just so funny how that's like that's never changed. You know what I mean? <laughs> because men are gross. <laughs> yeah, Logan. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so by this time, Holly's music had become more sophisticated and complex. And he passed off the lead guitar duties in the studio 
to session player Tommy Alsop. He had done several recordings in New York using session musicians such as King Curtis. It was around this time that the band started to see a slight decline in sales. Singles such as Heartbeat didn't sell nearly as well as the 45s. Uh, you know what a 45 is? Uh, the the vinyl like style, right? It's Correct. Like the size or whatever. Correct. Of it. 45s, yeah. yeah. Because it's like what 45, 18, and there's one other side. 18, right? Is it like smaller? <laughs> it's like super small. Isn't it? There's 45 and there's only two. There's 45s oh, there's and there's the regular size. Whatever yeah. That which is. Oh. oh my god, what are those? Are they like I don't know. 70? Yeah, Maybe. something like that. 22, it's, deucey do. I don't know. It's have, double, It's more than double, though, so 45. Yeah. Why does my vinyl player do three? What? what? It does three different sizes. Hold on. I'm going to find this. Oh, you're talking about those little itty-bitty ones? Yeah, I got like a little adapter for it and everything, too, so I can put it on my vinyl. It's like a little pl- plastic cup that no, holds it. Huh. That is a 45. Oh. that's a, You're talking about the one with the bigger hole in the middle of it. Maybe. And it, it's uh, the record's about this big around. Yep. That's that. So the, yeah. the larger ones, the larger records, and I damn it, I don't remember the damn size now, but yeah. it has a little hole in the center yeah. of it. That's where that silver one goes on your record yeah. player. Yeah. And the adapter is for the 45. It's for the 45. I'm okay. almost pot. Do me a favor. Yeah, look that yeah, up. Anyway, 45s, because like I had a Star Wars book when I was a kid mm-hmm. that had a record in it, and that was a 45. It like it went in a sleeve in, in one of the pages of the book. It was yeah. a little book, like yeah, yeah. children's book. I remember McDonald's used to give out 45s. Did they really? Yep. I actually got a Prince purple 45 from purple rain when it came out i think i got it from either a fast food place or i maybe it was given out at the movie theater and someone gave it to me you're gonna uh, like the news today because he's in the news it's oh a, is he oh yeah oh 33 45 and 78 that's it 33 okay 45 and 78 so there are, there are three the so smaller the ones point of the 33 you could probably only get what like five tracks on single that, yeah, or a single yeah quick single release yeah. Yeah, i bet sense. the radio stations use the 33s then you know what I mean? Rather than having storage of all the big records, they probably had the 33s. That was probably specifically for promotional stuff. Yes, yeah. yes. Hmm. So, it, it, of course, talking about Heartbeat here, it didn't sell as well as his records from 1957 that had rolled out of stores. It said that Buddy might even have uh, advanced further than most of the band's audience was willing to accept in late 1958. In other words, they really liked what he was doing, and he's progressively, like, he's wanting to be the best and doing stuff that people are not ready for. Right. And, of course, his fan base is kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if, I don't know, if, say, a drummer-wise, say uh, some steady what whatever drummer is doing really great and you really like him, and then all of a sudden the next day he's Danny Carey from Tool. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You're right. like, what? So um, critics believe that the song, well, all right, was years ahead of its time, and we'll make sure to put that into our playlist as well, which you can find, Icons and Outlaws, the playlist on Spotify. Buddy split with the group, okay, and yeah. Petty and Petty, that's, you know, his manager, yeah. in 1958. This departure left him free to chase some of those newer sounds, which also left him low on funds. In the course of the split, it became clear to Holly and everyone else that Petty mm-hmm, had been fudging the numbers and probably taken a lot of the group's income for himself. Oh, oh. Ike Turner. Yeah. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> Hit me again, Ike. <laughs> what you got to do? Put some stank on it. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was almost no way of proving his theft because he never seemed to finish his, quote, accounting of the money owed to anyone. His, bo- his books were ultimately found to be so screwed up that when he came up with various low five-figure settlements to the folks he robbed, they just took it. Jeez. So in other words, like he owed a shitload of money, and he's like, I don't know which one does it. And they're like, dude, just give me something. And that's what happens. So Holly vacationed with his wife in Lubbock, Texas, and hung out in Waylon Jennings' radio station in December 1958. He had his own radio station? Oh, yeah. Huh. Way- Waylon was amazing. I cannot wait to do yeah. an episode on him. 
With no money coming in from Petty, Holly decided to earn some quick cash by signing to play the Midwest's Winter Dance Party Package Tour. Okay? Okay. For the start of the Winter Dance Party Tour, he assembled a band consisting of Waylon Jennings on bass, Tommy Alsup on guitar, and Carl Bunch on drums. Waylon Jennings, by the way, buddy, I can't wait to do that episode just because you're going to love it. You're going <laughs> to love it. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get super Southern on that one. What's, what's his son, <laughs> son's name? Shooter? Uh, yes. Shooter yeah, Jennings. Yeah. He was in uh, Walk Hard with Joaquin Phoenix. He played Waylon. Yeah. Yeah, he played his dad. Yep. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. He was an amazing musician and yeah, whatever. Sorry. So Jennings stayed at Holly's apartment by Washington Square Park on the days before a meeting scheduled at the headquarters of the General Artist Corporation. The folks who actually organized this winter dance party tour. Okay. Right. They then traveled by train to Chicago to meet up with the rest of the band. The winter dance party tour began in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January uh, 23rd. That's Milwaukee. Thank I'm you. sorry. That's Algonquin for the good land. Thank you. On January 23rd, 1959, the amount of travel involved created problems because whoever booked the tour, and we've talked about this before, yeah. uh, the whoever booked the tour did not consider the distance between the venues. Oh, man. On top of these scheduling uh, um, conflicts, their unheated tour buses broke down twice in the freezing weather. In addition, Holly's drummer, Carl Bunch, was hospitalized for frostbite on his toes while on the bus. Wow. That's rough. <laughs> yes. Man. That's rough. So Buddy obviously was looking for different transportation. He didn't want to take the bus anymore. So Buddy, which is an awesome little story here, Buddy actually sat in on the drums for local bands while Richie Valens played drums for Buddy. I did not know that. That's amazing. I know they toured together, but I didn't know he, he played drums for it. Because Richie was on the, the same. Yeah. Do you know who Richie Valens is? That sounds super familiar. But la, I la, 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 bamba. Oh, okay. Or O'Donna. O'Donna. No, nah, I know La Bamba. <laughs> yeah. well, that sounded all creepy. <laughs> <laughs> What's wow. a creepy song? Yeah. yeah it is. You just, I had a girl. There she is right there. <laughs> I stare at her all day. Yeah so, Rich, yeah, so they were on the tour together, and they would fill in for each other, dude. That, that's so awesome. That's not uncommon, though. No. I mean, a lot of bands have done that yeah. over, over time, but that's it's still cool. It's still knowing that these two amazing... They were, like, they were probably the first ones to do that. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So on February 2nd, before their appearance in Clear Lake, Iowa, Holly chartered a four-seat Beechcraft Bonanza uh, airplane mm -hmm. for Jennings, Alsop, and himself. Beautiful from, plane from Dwyer Flying Service in Mason City, Iowa, for $108. Okay? It's not bad. It's expensive, but it's not bad. Holly, he's a plane guy. He loves planes. So, But you're not going to like this one. So Holly wanted to leave after the performance at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake and fly to their next venue in Moorhead, Minnesota, through Fargo, North Dakota. Okay? Yikes. This plan would allow them to rest, wash their clothes, and avoid being on that crappy bus. Right? Mm -hmm. The Clear Lake show ended just before midnight and also agreed to flip a coin for the seat with Richie Valens. Oh. Valens called heads, and when he won, he reportedly said, quote, that's the first time I've ever won anything in my life. Remember that. On a side note, Alsup later um, opened a restaurant in Fort Worth, Texas, called Heads Up in memory of that statement. Waylon Jennings voluntarily gave up his seat to J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. The Big Bopper. You know who that is? Hello, baby. You ever heard yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the big bobber. Gotcha. Yeah. I know what I like. Yeah. Uh, who yeah, He actually had the flu and uh, was complaining that the tour bus was just too cold. And uh, he was a big dude. Mm -hmm. And he just said it's too uncomfortable. So they, they were, you know, trying to get him. So Waylon Jennings gave up his seat and said, go ahead, dude. Take my seat on the plane. God, can you imagine, yeah. <laughs> imagine being Waylon after yeah. all that? Like, yep. Wow. 
When Buddy heard Whalen wouldn't be flying with him, he jokingly said, quote, I hope your old bus freezes up. And then Whalen responded jokingly, well, I hope your old plane crashes. Mm. Oh, it's the last God. thing that he would ever say to his friend. And he's got to live with that forever. Yep. Yikes. Roger Peterson, the pilot and only 21 years of age, took off in pretty nasty weather. Although he wasn't certified to fly by instruments alone, failing an instrument test the year before. He was a big fan of buddies, and he just didn't want to disappoint him. Right. So he called a more seasoned pilot to fly uh, the the guys to their destination. And that guy said, literally, the seasoned pilot, as he called him, goes, quote, I'm more of a Lawrence Welk fan and hung up. So this is not this is not too different from what happened with Kobe. Yeah, because they said that the helicopter pilot that flew Kobe. And his daughter to the game. They're trying to get him to the game quick. That's yeah. Kobe Bryant for those that may not right. be in the sports or whatever. But he knew. He knew. They were saying that he knew that they shouldn't have been flying in that weather. But he didn't want to let Kobe down. So, I mean, you could you could put yourself in those person's shoes. Like, if you got a star, like a, a huge iconic star in front of you. Let's say, like, Johnny Cash comes up to you, Logan. He's like, hey, Logan, I need you to drive me to Walmart. You're, you're going to be like, yes, yes. First, you're going to be go. like, holy shit, it's the ghost of Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> You want to go to Walmart? What do you want to go to Walmart? Johnny, Johnny you lost some weight there, bud. Yeah, they roll back prices, Logan. <laughs> yeah, but but need to get yeah, there. Valid point, though. Like, yeah. if you're especially you're young, you're 21, you're looking at this guy who's a rock star, and he's asking you to like, hey man, I really need to get there. Can we do this? Yeah. So sadly, shortly after 12:55 a.m. on February 3rd, 1959, Holly, Valens, Richardson, and Peterson were killed instantly when the plane crashed into a frozen cornfield five miles northwest of Mason City, Iowa, uh, right near the airport shortly after takeoff. Buddy was in the front next to the pilot. He loved flying and had actually been taking flying lessons. The three musicians were ejected from the plane upon impact, suffering severe uh, head and chest injuries. Holly was only 22 years old. Oof, jeez. Holly's funeral was held on February 7th, 1959 at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas. It was officiated by Ben D. Johnson, who married Buddy and his wife just months earlier. Jerry Allison, Joe B. Malden, Nikki Sullivan, Bob Montgomery, and Sonny Curtis were pallbearers. Some sources say that Phil Everly, um, one half of the Everly brothers, was also a pallbearer, but he said at one time that he attended the funeral but was not actually a pallbearer. So it was just like a little rumor that was out there. Gotcha. In addition, Waylon Jennings was unable to participate because of his commitment to the still touring winter dance party. So the tour continued. Jeez. Holly's, uh, Buddy Holly's body was buried in the city of Lubbock Cemetery in the city's eastern part. His headstone has the correct spelling of his last name. That's H-O-L-L-E-Y. And a carving of his Fender Stratocaster guitar is on it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. His wife, Mary Alina, had to see the first reports of her husband's death on TV. She claimed she suffered a miscarriage the following day. Oh. Think about this. They didn't call her. She heard about it from TV. Oh. Well, that was uh, Richie Valens' brother, if you watch that movie. Yeah. Remember, he's working on his bike, and it's on the radio? He heard it on the radio. In the garage? Yeah. Yeah. Holly's mother, who heard the news on the radio in Lubbock, Texas, screamed and collapsed. Because of Alina's miscarriage, the authorities implemented a policy against announcing victims' names until the families were informed. So, at least something positive came out of that. You know what I mean? Um, So much negative, you know. As a result, Mary did not attend the funeral and has never visited the gravesite. She later told the Avalanche Journal, quote, In a way, I blame myself. I was not feeling well, feeling, feeling well when he left. I was two weeks pregnant, and I wanted Buddy to stay with me. 
but he had scheduled that tour. It was the only time I wasn't with him, and I blame myself because I know that if I only had um, gone along, Buddy never would have gotten into that airplane. And these poor people got to live with this stuff yeah, for their whole life. It's lives, rough. That's so crazy. The accident wasn't considered a significant piece of news at the time, although sad. Most news outlets were run by out-of-touch older men and didn't think rock and roll was anything more than to be exploited to sell newspapers or grab viewing audiences. That's the devil's music. Yep. However, Holly, Buddy here, was clean-cut and scandal-free, and with the news of his recent marriage, the story contained more misery than other music stars of the period. I mean, think about it. Like, this is like, he is the the quintessential clean-cut good boy that's yeah. playing music that just got married and then he and other, you know what I mean? Other yeah. musicians. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. For the teens of the time, it was their first glimpse of a public tragedy like this. And the news was heartbreaking. Radio station DJs were also traumatized. The accident and sudden way it happened, along with uh, Buddy and Valens' uh, being just 22 and 17. But uh, Va- Richie Valens was only 17 years of age. Wow. Yeah. It made it even worse, obviously. They were young. Too young. Yeah. Hank Williams Sr. had died at 29, and we'll be doing an episode coming up with uh, old Hank. Can't wait for that. But he was a drug user and a heavy drinker, okay, causing some people to believe his young death was inevitable, like he caused it himself. Right. And we will definitely discuss that in that episode. The blues guitarist Johnny Ace had just recently passed away in 1954 while backstage at a show. However, that tragedy came at his own hand in a game of Russian roulette. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never heard of that? Oh, yeah. (sighs) Holly's death was different, almost like just personal to the public. Buddy left behind dozens of unfinished recordings, solo transcriptions of his new compositions, informal jam sessions with bandmates, and tapes with songs intended for other musicians, more and more B-sides. Buddy recorded his last six original songs in his apartment in late 1958 and were his most recent recordings. In June 1959, Coral Records overdubbed two of the songs with backing vocals by Ray Charles Singers, uh, the Ray Charles Singers, that's his backup singers, Ray Charles, you know who Ray Charles is? Yeah. Okay. And hired guns to emulate the cricket sound. Uh, Since his death, the finished tracks became the first singles, Peggy Sue Got Married, Crying, Waiting, and Hoping. So those are the two singles. Okay. The new release was a success, and the fans and industry wanted more. As a result, all six songs were included in the Buddy Holly Story Volume 2, in 1960 using the other holly demos and the same studio personnel so they put out more of these tracks that he already recorded gotcha the demand for buddy's records was amazing and holly had recorded so many tracks that his record label could release new holly albums new albums and singles for the next 10 years wow there was another person that died recently within the last five years is it prince Prince. that has a big catalog i just remember uh i went to uh, paisley park yeah, and he's got so much music that I, I think it's like for the next ten years or fifteen years something yeah. like that. He could do like music, like he could put out a new record like every day, basically. Wow. It wasn't like I don't know if it was Michael Michael Jackson or somebody's. There was somebody else too that's a big big name. It might have been a lot. Like a I know catalog. Prince for sure, but you should have seen his house, dude. He had like three studios, or maybe I think maybe even more. It might have been four, but like his studios were like, I mean, legit pro studios, and he would just spend all day in there. Oh, sure. All day. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I would. That'd be a dream come true for yeah. me. If I had the freaking, yeah. if I could afford it, I'd be yeah. in there, man. I'd, I'd even put a little time clock on the outside by the door and punch in and punch out. You know? yeah. <laughs> so Norman Petty, remember that guy? The guy that was stealing money from everybody? Mm-hmm. The alleged swindler. 
He produced most of these new songs using unreleased studio masters, uh, alternative ta- alternative takes, audition tapes, and even amateur recordings. A few from 1954 uh, that were recorded uh, with low-quality vocals on them. The final Buddy Holly album, Giant, was released in 1969 with the single Love is Strange taking the lead. These posthumous records did well in the U.S., but actually freaking charted in England. Wow. You're talking... What, 10 years after his death? Yeah. They they charted in England after the fact. This this is like inspiring me. I think we should make a record that we put away to be distributed after our wills. <laughs> after we're dead? Yeah. <laughs> Why? So no one can listen to him then too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Right? I mean, yeah, it would. It would be cool. I mean, why not? Yeah. Put it in a vault somewhere. Yeah. Upon my death, release yeah. these 19,000 albums upon the world, Logan. <laughs> the lawyer would be like, well, we're going to have to go to uh, whatever they call that, uh, a vintage retro store to find a uh, a player. Yeah, yeah a player for <laughs> yeah. it to play. Right. set deck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so new recordings of his music, like the Rolling Stones rendition of Not Fade Away and the Beatles renditions of Words of Loved, kept Buddy's name and music in the hearts and ears of a new generation of listeners. In the United States, the struggle was a little more challenging. The rock and roll wave was constantly morphing with new sounds, bands, listeners, and just people continuously emerging, and the general public gradually forgot about Buddy Holly and his short-lived legacy. 18 months, and he did all that. That's insane. Holly was a largely forgotten figure in his own country by the end of the 60s, except among older fans, you know, then in their 20s, mm-hmm. and hardcore oldies listeners. Things began to shift toward the end of the 60s with the start of the oldies boom. Holly's music was, of course, a part of this movement. But as people listened, they also learned about the man behind the music. Even the highly respected rock magazine Rolling Stone went out of its way to remind people who Buddy Holly was. His posing images from 1957 and 1958 wearing his glasses, a jacket, and a smiling a smile on his face looked like a figure from another age. And you've probably seen that picture of him where he's just kind of smiling there with his black-rimmed glasses on. It's just an iconic picture. Yeah. You know? uh, the way he died also set him apart from some of the deaths of rockers like Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison, which we'll cover definitely in our episodes, who musicians at the time... They, they were overindulging mm-hmm. in the whole rock and roll lifestyle. They were doing drugs and drinking and, you know what I mean, like crazy stuff. Again, Buddy was different. He was eternally innocent in all aspects of his life. Don McLean, a relatively unknown singer and songwriter who probably considered himself a Buddy Holly fan, wrote and released a song called American Pie in 1971, catapulting him into the musical ethos. Although listeners assumed McLean wrote the song about President Kennedy, he let it be known publicly that he meant February 3rd, 1959, the day Holly died. McLean was a Buddy Holly fan, and his death devastated him when he was only 11 years old. So he held on to that the whole time. The song's popularity led to Holly suddenly getting more press exposure than he'd ever had the chance to enjoy in his lifetime. He was more famous after he died. You know, but I mean, which happens a lot. It happens a lot. Uh, look yeah. at uh, Bradley Knoll. Yeah, from Sublime. Yeah, you know, like that first record was great, but when that second one came out after he died, dude, people still rock that record to this Isn't day. It, uh, Blind Melon was the same thing too. Yeah, yeah. Like Shannon Noon, I think is yeah Moon or Noon or something. I think like it's that, Noon. Yeah, yeah. He that was the same thing. Yeah. So now, do you uh, know that song that I'm talking about here? Um, um, the day that we, uh, American Pie. Yeah. You know that song? I okay. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Sing it. 
No, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Come on, buddy. Is that the one where it's I'll uh, give you a hint. Chevy. Yeah, as I'm gonna say, I, you know, I drove my Chevy to the to the mile or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Correctly. No, it's the one that goes uh, bye bye, uh, Miss American Pie. Drove the Chevy to the levee. Now the levee is dry. Them good right. old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing "This will be the day that I die." Gotcha. That's that's the song from American Pie. Okay. If you the book of love in the way, in the way. I was, I was singing I the Weird Al version earlier. What is the Weird Al version? Uh, he goes, um, um, bye, bye, this here Anakin guy. Maybe it's about Vader's, Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Vader someday later, but he's just a small I fry. Hope, it's so good. I hope they do that movie justice. Oh, like, I hope it's like, they better. it's not just a piece of crap, right? If, if he's got any, he's still alive, so he's got to have input. So yeah. hopefully it's going to be good. Love me some Weird Al. Cannot wait to do that one. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. What are we going to cover? Uh, ooh. I'd say you get to pick because that's like one of your that's one of your boys oh man oh, all right i like what would you want to it's gonna do? be something awesome um probably one of his originals like um the day santa, santa went crazy uh or or uh christmas at ground zero i've never um, heard any of those but I'll what I'll oh my god it yeah. it's awesome it's about santa going nuts and killing everybody really oh yeah <laughs> it's, it's so good so uh sorry <laughs> so this horrible and as we go right into the plane accident that is horrible uh the plane accident obviously tragic and launched a few careers in the years after bobby v became a star when his band took over holly's spot on the winter dance party tour okay so obviously buddy couldn't continue on it so bobby v came in holly's final single um it doesn't matter anymore hit the british charts in the wake of his death and rose to number one posthumously you know what i mean that's insane yeah that's insanity two years well i guess it's kind of the same thing what's going on with the foo fighters right now mm -hmm. you know yeah. which we will talk about later Two years after the event, producer Joe Meek and singer um, Mike Berry got together to make Tribute to Buddy Holly, a memorial single. But unfortunately, rumor has it that Meek never entirely got over Holly's death, and he unfortunately killed himself on the anniversary of the plane accident. Yeah. That's a Chester Chris Cornell thing. Yeah, lots of, lots of misery involved in this whole thing. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame included Holly among its first class in 1986. Upon his induction, the Hall of Fame uh, basked about the large quantity of material he produced during his short musical career, saying, quote, he made a major and lasting impact on popular mu music, calling him an innovator for writing his own material, experimenting with double tracking and using orchestration. Before anyone else was doing this in the rock and roll world, you know what right. I mean? He was also revered for having, quote, pioneered and popularized the use of two guitars, bass and drums by rock bands. Which is a standard now. So every rhythm guitarist in the world right now needs to be kissing Buddy Holly's ass. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Because you wouldn't have a job if it weren't for him. Absolutely. 100%. He was also inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1986, saying his contributions, quote, changed the face of rock and roll. Along with Petty, you know, that guy, Holly developed techniques like overdubbing and reverb and other innovative instrumentation. Huh. As a result, according to the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Holly became, quote, one of the most influential pioneers of rock and roll who had a, quote, lasting influence on genre performance of the 1960s. I'm telling you, you musicians out there right now, especially guitarists, you owe him a great debt of gratitude. Yeah, man. He he sounds like he was a hands-on guy yeah. in the studio. Like, he wasn't just there to no. record songs. He was there to, to tweak and He was using all adapt. kinds. Yeah, like, if you yeah. listen to it, you got to go back and listen to it. Like, again, we'll throw it on a, uh, the playlist so everyone can get a chance to kind of hear some of these other songs. Yeah. They're just amazing. Um. Here's something awesome. Paul McCartney 
of the Beatles yes. oh, okay. bought the right spirit animal. <laughs> I love Paul McCartney, man. He's amazing. Well, he bought the rights to Buddy Holly's entire song catalog on July 1st of 1976. Yeah, he, he probably did with a suitcase, too. He's probably like, hey, mate. <laughs> Slams on the table. It's mine. How much? Oh, I've got that in my back pocket. <laughs> he also bought, uh, didn't he buy, or no, Michael Jackson bought the Beatles. Yeah. And then he sold it back, right? Maybe. I don't know. I thought that was it. I thing. think so. We'll discuss that in Michael yeah, Jackson. We'll definitely talk about that. So Lubbock, Texas's Walk of Fame has a statue honoring Buddy of him rocking his Fender guitar, which Grant Speed sculpted in 1980. There are also other memorials to Buddy Holly, including a street named in his honor and the Buddy Holly Center, which contains a museum of memorabilia and uh, a fine arts gallery. Oh, so I just want to mention something here real quick, too, uh, just for Buddy Holly. Like, the Fender Stratocaster is the ultimate basic guitar body shape of when you think of a guitar, let's say you went on to Google and you wanted to get a clip art of a guitar, right? Every guitar silhouette, I mean, it's going to look like a Strat. Fender Stratocaster yeah. is like the most basic looking guitar. Like, and it's just crazy. It's mind blowing me. I never knew that, that he was the first. He though. was the guy. Yeah. Like, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So this, uh, the center is actually located on Crickets Avenue, which is one street east of Buddy Holly Avenue. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. There was a musical about Buddy. Uh, it was Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, a, quote, pioneering juke, uh, jukebox musical which worked his familiar hits into a narrative. Hmm. It debuted in the West End in 1989 in Texas. It ran until 2008, where it also appeared on Broadway, as well as in Australia and Germany, not to mention touring companies in the UK and the United States. Wow. So he actually had his own, like, ongoing musical about him. In 1994, Buddy Holly became a massive hit from the band... Uh, Beatles. <laughs> Weezer. And there it is. Oh, you were about to get the button. Oh, man. Paying homage to the fallen rocker and is, is still played on the radio and whenever MTV uh, decides to play videos on one of their side stations. Again, in 94, Holly's style also showed up in Quentin Tarantino's abstract and groundbreaking film Pulp Fiction, which featured one and only Steve Buscemi playing a waiter impersonating Buddy Holly. Oh, God. Remember that? Steve Buscemi. He's amazing. Love it. He was talking about the milkshake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In 1997, Buddy received the Lifetime, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. He was inducted into the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000 as well. In 2010, Grant Speed's statue of Buddy and his guitar was taken down for repairs, and construction of a new Walk of Fame began. On May 9, 2011, the city of Lubbock held a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the Buddy and Maria Alina Holly Plaza, the new home of the statue and the Walk of Fame. The same year, on what would be Buddy's 75th birthday, a star with his name was placed on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Wow. I mean, it's too bad it took like 40 years for everybody to really appreciate and figure yeah, this out. It but sucks. At least they did. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's better than it just going yep. to the wayside. Right. Now, there, were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of tribute stuff that went on, too. So there were two tribute albums released in 2011. Ver Forecast, Listen to Me, of Buddy Holly, featuring Stevie Nicks. Oh. Okay. Okay. Brian Wilson. And your buddy, Ringo Starr. Hey, yeah. Ringo. Brian Wilson's you sh- from the Beach Boys. I was about to say, did you shake your head at Brian Wilson? I don't know who that is. Oh, God, I can't He's wait to Beach, the Beach Boy. Boys. A Beach Boy. Yeah. Oh. You don't know Beach Boys? I don't know Boys. the Beach Boys. Okay. Yeah, I love the Beach Boys. Right. I don't know. I don't know anybody by name, but yeah, I love the Beach Boys. You have no idea about the Beach Boys. Dude, the harmonies? No. No, I'm not even talking the music. I'm talking all the, the scandal oh, and shit behind Charlie it. Manson? Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah, oh, dude. Cannot wait to do oh, that yeah, There's some crazy yeah. stuff. Oh, wow. um, oh, yeah. So along with these uh, amazing musicians, there were uh, 13 other artists and uh, Fantasy Concord's ra- uh, other album, Rave on Buddy Holly, which had tracks from Paul McCartney, Patti Smith, 
the Black Keys, and Nick Lowe, among others. Pat Denizio of the Smithereens released his own Holly tribute album in 2009. Universal released True Love Ways, an album where uh, original Holly recordings were overdubbed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in 2018. Wow. Just in time for Christmas, which I'd never heard of and I kind of want to check out now. Yeah. That album debuted at number 10 on the UK charts in 2018. Wow. He's still killing it over there. It's just amazing. That's the power of melodies, yeah. man. Groundbreaking was held on April 20th, 2017 to construct a new performing arts center in Lubbock, Texas, dubbed the Buddy Holly Hall of Performing Arts and Scientists. A $153 million project in downtown Lubbock completed in 2020, located at 1300 Mac Davis Lane. And if you're down there in Lubbock, you should go and check it out. Or send us pictures on our Facebook page. Yes, that'd be amazing. And if you're, yeah, if you're in there. Recently on May 5th, 2019, an article on GearNews.com had a pretty cool story. And Jeff, you're going to freaking love this. The famous Fender Stratocaster played and owned by Buddy Holly that disappeared after his death in 1959 has been found. Oh, it disappeared? Yeah. According to a new video documentary called The 54. So wait, the gear wasn't on the plane. Correct. That's interesting. Yeah. So, well, Gil Matthews is an Australian drummer, producer, and collector of old Fender guitars. According to uh, the documentary, he may have stumbled upon Buddy Holly's legendary guitar. The film is the 54 and tells the history of one particular 1954 Fender Stratocaster Gil purchased two decades after the plane crash that claimed Buddy's life. Experts cited in the film say there is a good chance the guitar in Matthews' possession is, in fact, Buddy Holly's actual original 1954 Fender Stratocaster. Cha-ching! Yeah. If this is true, it is possibly one of the most significant finds in guitar history. And if you guys want to check out the video, just go to gearnews.com and see all the evidence presented during the film. They can probably tell by the wiring to the pickups. I mean, I'm sure these significant wires back then being like one of the first releases... Yeah, yeah, like I'm somebody sure. at Fender could confirm. Like, well, oh yeah, pictures you know. also too. Right. You could probably you know do all that up. So, so that's Buddy Holly. Yeah, that's crazy. What do you think? That's amazing. I'm yeah. I'm amazed, man. Like I didn't know. I mean, I knew a little bit of, but I didn't know about the guitar. I didn't know about like all this other stuff, man. That's and like that he was like a hands-on guy. Yep, that's so yeah. cool. He I would have never known. He was an innovator, and I mean, definitely, uh, of course, as always, true with the ones that die too young, died way too young, mm-hmm. but accomplished more in 18 months in the music industry than most people will ever do in their entire lives. And still still doing it. This week in music news. All right. (laughs) So this is the week of March 27th, 2022. Nice. Uh, You guys familiar with the band Aerosmith? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know who that is, Logan, right? Uh, Yeah. Love in an Elevator. Okay. There you go. Hey. Yeah. So Aerosmith drummer Joey Kramer takes temporary leave of absence from the band. It says, quote, he regrettably made the decision to sit out the band's concerts in 2022 so he could focus his full attention on his family during these uncertain times, the band said in a statement. <laughs> and his hips. <laughs> right. <laughs> Aerosmith are returning from a two-year hiatus when their deuces are wild Las Vegas residency, which I didn't know they had. Wow, I didn't know that either. Resumes in June for a run of 24 shows, but the entire band won't be there long for the ride. They announced Friday that drummer Joey Kramer won't be taking part of any of the shows. Regrettably made the decision to sit out on the band's concert in 2022 so he could focus his full attention on his family during these uncertain times. Uh, the band said in a statement to the USA Today, 
He and the band look forward to his future performances with Aerosmith. They're calling the situation a temporary leave of absent, absence, 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 abstinence, abstinence, and a different story. Right. And they note that the drum technician, Jack Douglas, will once again take his place behind the kit. So the drum tech is stepping up. That's cool. It gets interesting, though, because if you're familiar with Aerosmith, they've had quite a, I don't know how you would say it. They fought their entire career. It was quite it, tumultuous. It like, yeah, they were always butting heads. So yeah, it's very tumultuous. Deeper in this article, uh, the band released a statement. Joey Kramer is our brother. His well-being of Paramount is important to us. The band said in a statement, however, he has not been emotionally and physically able to perform with the band by his own admission for the last six months. We have missed him and have encouraged him to rejoin us to play many times, but he apparently has not felt ready to do so. Oh, boy. Joey responded with, I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall asleep because I miss you, Stephen, and I don't want to miss a thing. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm glad you got I mean, it. I mean, I get it. it. I get it, but man, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, oh. Anyway, so apparently there's some turmoil. As usual. Wait, did he really say that? No. Oh, you put I thought that was awesome. That was that good. <laughs> I thought you said he yeah. said that. They're going to put me on weekend update. You. <laughs> All right. Oh, man, so, you got me on that one. I know. Next in the news, and the only reason I brought this up because I don't understand how this is possible, but Adele, you know who Adele is? Mm-hmm. Her Rolling in the Deep music video hit 2 billion YouTube views. Oh, my two God. Billion. Why? I don't know. It says Adele's music video for Rolling in the Deep has reached a uh, fever pitch by becoming the singer's second visual to reach 2 billion YouTube views. So apparently she had another video that reached 2 probably billion. Probably that Fire to the Rain song. Yeah. Which I actually dig that song. <clears throat> no, it was probably that, uh, wait, what song is it that just reached 2 billion? Hello to the Other Side. That Hello to the Other Side. Right. Is that her? Wait, singing again? I can't, I can't hit that note. <laughs> Are you I, singing Break yeah. On Through to the Other Side? No, no, no. <laughs> Hello to the Other Side, right? Hello. Is it me you're looking for? See, no, no, no that's... <laughs> <laughs> my brain that's automatically like, goes there. Me it, too. I, know, I was about I know. to do it. That's Lionel Richie. I know. I know what song you're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it had to be Fire <laughs> Fire to the Rain or whatever it's called, which is a good song. So I, I just wanted to throw... Because 2 billion views That's crazy. That is crazy. Get that on the regular. Adele, door. I hope you monetize that video, and I hope you got ads on it. Yeah. Because you are not going to work again. Loaded. Yeah. Loaded. Uh, next one. This is for you. Okay. Prince, the immersive experience to debut in Chicago this summer. Uh, what is it, like a musical? Guests will be able to step inside Prince's iconic Purple Rain album cover. Presented by Superfly in partnership with Prince's estate, the interactive experience will boast 10 multidimensional spaces that will bring the late musical innovators' creative evolution, activism, and sound to life, including the artwork for one of his most influential albums, Purple Rain. Quote, you're going to be able to step into Purple Rain album cover, Super Superfly co-founder Carrie Black tells Rolling Stone, where you can get a photo up on the motorcycle, but we're also doing a full build out of the entire street scene. So you could basically redo the cover of Purple Rain. That's crazy. Yeah. They're going I to love it. Like a whole set. That's awesome. Yeah, where, that's where's this cool. gonna Where's it gonna be at? In Chicago. Oh, I might have Chicago. To go to Chicago. <laughs> I might have to go to Chicago. I just thought that was interesting. It's like, well, why? Yeah. But I guess that's cool. I guess people will do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And so that's the news. And then obviously the big bummer for everybody is uh, deaths. Yeah. This, this week. So we lost a major, major, major player in the rock and roll world. Taylor Hawkins, icon and outlaw. 50 years old, we salute you. 
found dead in his hotel room. Still speculations of to what the cause of death was. Just turned 50 last month, too. Yeah. On tour. Yeah. In uh, Bogota, Colombia. Colombia. Bogota. Bogota. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, right now, there's just speculation, as far as we know, um, as far as his death um apparently they said that his heart was like expanded way too big i get yeah they found opioids heroin yeah. marijuana, and, and this so. is also somebody that struggled with addiction for a very long time he almost died from heroin 2001 yeah yep wow 2001 he so almost died. it's terrible man he was a one of a kind and we'll be going over him when we do the foo fighters but yeah you can only imagine what dave is going through you can only imagine what the band is going through. his family yeah. like yeah our hearts that go sucks, out to the, the family and friends for sure and yeah. anyone that had any kind of relationship and the fans to be honest everyone that was a fan of of the Foo Fighters and Taylors so I want to do just a little tribute to him or take a, a minute and 26 seconds of our time and I'm going to show you one of the best solos he's ever done here cool play it Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe to all of our social media channels. Just search for Icons and Outlaws wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and connect with your favorite people. We produce another amazing podcast called The Midnight Train. And if you're into unsolved true crime, the paranormal, or anything mysterious, and you can actually laugh at the craziness of all of it, we think you'll love it. You can find links to that and all the other great content we're putting out over at AccidentalDads.com, our centralized network hub. Lastly, please consider supporting the show, uh, both, uh, you know, both shows, should I say, by signing up to be a Patreon producer over at patreon.com forward slash accidental dads, where for as little as five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes, exclusive content and discount codes on merchandise for both shows. Thanks for listening to our episode on Buddy Holly. And in the immortal words of Buddy Holly, quote, death is very often referred to as a good career move. Thank you.
listener we hope you enjoyed our song and remember you can listen to it anytime you want to on spotify apple or anywhere else you listen to your favorite music just look up icons and outlaws thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon